Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. This is the second in a two-part Theology Night series on the identity of Jesus, hosted by Redemption Church pastor Dr. Scott Osborne. He answers the question, why did Jesus call himself the Son of Man? The answer finds its roots in the Old Testament, and it might surprise you. All right, welcome to another Theology Night. I'm excited to be with you. I'm glad you're taking a break from your third viewing of the Tiger King. Just kidding, no, hopefully you're all doing well tonight. We are uh, doing these every Monday night during our quarantine time, and Uh, The last couple times uh, we have been looking at um, Jesus and asking the question, who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And mainly doing that by looking at his titles or his self-identities or who he identifies himself as. And uh, so we did last week was actually talk about Jesus as the Son of God. And tonight what we want to do is actually look at Jesus being uh, the Son of Man. And uh, it's a very uh, powerful title. It's a very important title. And uh, looking forward to being with you all tonight to to discuss <clears throat> what's happening here. So glad to uh, be a part of this with you. And hopefully it'll be helpful for you. Just a couple of things to be reminding of. Uh, there should be a document connected to this page. Um, some notes that you can follow along with and be able to um, see the scriptures that I'm highlighting, or you can have your Bible out. I will definitely let you know what and where we're at in all of this. Um, But once you know that's available, I do want you to know that there are opportunities for questions. Um, So please feel free to uh, write out your questions on the sidebar, and I will get to them. If you're here and want to say hello, it would be great to see that as well. So, John, hello, if you're still with us, and the Graysons from Tennessee, I think you're still there. Mom's joined here, so, yeah, we're going to get going here. But just know that there is that uh, document, that study guide right above there, and encourage you to go ahead and um, download that so you can follow along with us. And uh, we're going to start by... Just giving some overview to this title, Jesus being the Son of Man. And one of the most important messianic descriptions that Jesus gives to himself in the scriptures and the gospel writers record for us is Jesus talking and telling us that he is the Son of Man. This phrase, Son of Man, is in fact Jesus' favorite way to describe himself. He uses this title more than any other title in his ministry, in his public ministry. In fact, it is used 82 times in the New Testament, and 78 of those times are in the Gospels. And so it's a very powerful phrase. It's a very powerful title, especially in the Gospels. And not that it's absent in the New Testament documents, the the letters and other, you know, like Acts. It is there, um, but only a couple times. And uh, so what we want to do tonight is asked this question that we ask all the time. When Jesus entered into the world, what did he mean by the phrase Son of Man? Now, 
As we looked at last week, Son of God and Son of Man, one of the things that was interesting to me was most of the time we take these two phrases, Son of God and Son of Man, and kind of put them together and say Jesus was the perfect God-man. And so in a sense, it kind of highlights that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And as important as that doctrine is, that he is fully God and fully man, there is actually a context, there's a life situation, there is a worldview that when Jesus is born, in a sense, he jumps into that worldview. So if I was born and transported myself right now back to first century Judaism with Paul, and I started walking around and saying things like the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, they would look at me kind of strange. Like, what do you mean by that phrase, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? And I would have to go back and explain, you know, the Revolutionary War and the Founding Fathers, and they would have to get a sense of what I meant by that. And I think the same thing happens when we come to Scripture, is that rather than impose and kind of import what we want the phrase to mean, we actually have to come and ask things like, what was Jesus meaning by this phrase? We have to come and ask questions by, what did the writers understand? What was Jesus's self-understanding about this phrase, Son of Man? And we're going to come to see that there is a lot of deep, deep understanding of this phrase, Son of Man, that Jesus, when he walks on the scene and says, I am the Son of Man, he has a lot of import into this. And so hopefully we can actually kind of peek at that and um, understand what is actually happening with that. So that's hopefully what your appetite just get us back in the picture here that there's a context. And um, one of the things I didn't say about this phrase that I think is really fascinating is that when this time the phrase is used 78 times in the Gospels, Jesus is the only person who says it about himself. Nowhere is it ever recorded that his disciples called him the Son of Man, that his enemies called him the Son of Man, that someone he healed was called the Son of Man. No, in fact, of the 78 times that Jesus uses this title, every time he uses it himself, which I just find really interesting, is uh, that this title is something very near and dear to Jesus. And so here's what we're going to do. We're just going to look quickly at a couple of Old Testament backgrounds and then actually dig into one of them very specifically. So the phrase is used in the Old Testament, Son of Man as a synonym for humans, and specifically humans and their function and purpose in creation. And so have on your document there for you, like Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, that says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? If you're familiar with Psalm 8, it's quoted in the book of Hebrews about Jesus as well. But it's talking about man's authority to rule over the earth and the uniqueness that man has to rule over the earth. And so the purpose here is identifying humanity as a son of man and their role and their purpose in ruling and having authority over the earth. But there's also two more passages here in the Old Testament that, in a sense, depict the Son of Man is being distinct from the Creator, from God Himself. So God is not man, number says, that He should lie. Or a Son of Man, that He should change His mind. Has He said and will not do it? Or has He spoken and He will not fulfill it? 
So the author here, Moses, is just highlighting once again the distinction, the, the dichotomy between God and man and showing that the Son of Man are people who don't fulfill promises, who don't keep their covenants, and yet here God is the exact opposite. And similarly, the book of Isaiah, um, many, many centuries later, picks up this same phrase that says, I am the one who comforts you. Who are you afraid of, man who dies? of the Son of Man who is made like grass, and have forgotten the Lord your Maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And so again, we're reminded here that the Son of Man is like grass, in the sense that he is alive for a while, then he withers, and then he dies. And yet he is distinct from the Creator, is the one who comes and comforts us in our weariness and in our frailty. And so there's just this idea, and I have other passages there if you want to look at them, but there's just this concept in the Old Testament. The Son of Man is a description of humans, their function, their purpose, what they're like. And yet, there is one passage where there is this growing understanding throughout the Old Testament that if you understand how God gave information to Israel, like he didn't give the entire Bible at one time. He gave Israel the first five books of the Bible from Moses. And then when he gave them more information, what they were called to do is take the new information and interpret it in light of the old and connect the two. And so there is constantly this new revelation being given to the, to the people of God. And they were called to interpret it in light of each other and to make connections. And as this interpretation and through the history of Israel and the people of God and the people who would interpret the scriptures for the people of God, there is this growing awareness of a future son of David, a future messianic king, an anointed one, that God was going to establish on God's throne and give an eternal kingdom to. And so there's this growing sense of this person who is coming, and this person is identified as a son of man, as a human. And we come to the most important passage that I think Jesus is wholeheartedly referencing when he identifies himself as the son of man from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Daniel has this. He says, In my vision at night I looked... And there is before me one was like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all the nations and peoples of every language worshipped this son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so here we have an Old Testament prediction, an Old Testament vision of Daniel, of a son of man coming to the Ancient of Days, riding on a cloud, and being given this authority to rule over all the nations of the earth. And he'll be given a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It'll be an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. And so God is promising one day that his kingdom is going to actually come and be given to a person, a son of man. Now, let's dig into a little bit of Daniel chapter 7 together. And uh, it's good to see all of you with us here, Jen and Krista, Michelle, Anne. Glad you guys are joining us. We're jumping into the vision in Daniel chapter 7, and uh, verses 13 and 14, specifically talking about the son of man. But 
Daniel had a bad night. Um, I don't know if you have nightmares or crazy visions and eat too much pizza or whatever, but Daniel had a vision of four beasts coming up out of the sea in the first eight verses of Daniel chapter 7. The first beast that came up out of the sea was a lion that had eagle's wings. A second beast came up out of the sea of a bear and had three ribs in his mouth and was told to eat up. A third beast, which was a four-headed leopard with four wings like a bird, came. And then the most terrifying of all the beasts that came out of the sea was the fourth one. And this was an utterly terrifying beast. It had ten horns. In fact, he identifies the first one as a lion, the second one as a bear, the third one as a leopard. The fourth one, there's not a lot of description to. This is how terrifying it was. It had ten horns. And then from those ten horns, there grew an eleventh horn. And this horn, the eleventh horn, actually had an eyes and a mouth. And so this is quite a crazy dream. And so the description then is a picture of a final person, a final ruler, a final kingdom of the Ancient of Days who is actually on his throne. And so there's this picture of these four beasts coming up out of the sea and a picture of the Ancient of Days, God or Yahweh himself, sitting on the throne. And then in chapter 7 verse 11 and 12 after identified and introduced the ancient of days there is the judgments of the fourth kingdom so what ends up happening is we'll see here is that each one of these beasts that comes up out of the sea is representative of a king and a kingdom and they kind of take over in successive order and this final kingdom this final beast is then actually thrown down and judged by Yahweh himself. The other three had kind of taken over each other, and so now that there's this final um, king and kingdom that is ruling, and God himself takes care of it. And then, after all of this, is when the Son of Man that we read passage comes into play, is that God is going to, through this Son of Man, destroy all the powers, all the rulers. In fact, he's going to destroy this utterly terrifying ruler that we will come to find out is persecuting and judging God's people. And so this is the vision. This is the bad night that Daniel has of these successive kingdoms. And the goal tonight is not to identify these successive kingdoms we can do that another night. My point is, is just to focus in on that particular passage there in verse 13 and 14 of what it means that Jesus is the Son of Man. And in this passage in Daniel chapter 7, we just identified the vision, what it is, but in we call apocalyptic fashion, in Old Testament prophecy fashion, there is usually an interpretation that follows it. So, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel is given a dream, again, of a statue, and the statue has all these different metals. And then after he tells the dream, he then interprets the dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. And he does the same thing here. He tells what the dream is, and then he goes ahead and interprets the dream. And so when we look at the second half of Daniel chapter 7, we're like, what does all this mean? He tells us what it all means. He gives us an interpretation. Yet, when we read this interpretation of the vision, we need to remember a couple things. Number one, we're 2,600 years removed from the time of writing, which means 
we really don't think the way they think. And when we read Daniel chapter 7 and the interpretation, if you're like me, we're still like, what? What do you mean? What are you talking about? This is an interpretation. This is more riddles. And so there are lots of things that Daniel identifies as the interpretation of vision that we still might have question about. But there is one particular detail that I want to highlight and actually look at together with you tonight that I find is super fascinating that we need to actually come and ask this question. And the question we want to ask in the second half of the passage is, who actually receives the eternal kingdom? If you are with me and following me in Daniel chapter 7, in verses 13 and 14, the Son of Man comes on the clouds of heaven to God himself. He's led into God's presence, and the Son of Man is given God's kingdom. Now, when we read the interpretation of the Son of Man in the second half, look in verse 18. The question I'm asking as we read the second half is, who receives this eternal kingdom? Verse 18 says this, But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Verse 22, Until the Ancient of Days comes, came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Or verse 27, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms of heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. I don't know if you are catching what I'm throwing your way here, but here's what I'm trying to get you to see. The Son of Man is strikingly absent. In the vision, the Son of Man is one who is given the kingdom. In the interpretation, three times, who is given the kingdom? Not the Son of Man, but the people of the Most High. The holy ones, the holy people of the Most High, are the ones who come and receive the kingdom. So this produces a great tension. The tension is simply this. The interpretation tells us that the Son of Man is actually the people of God or Israel. And yet, Jesus comes on the scene proclaiming that he is the Son of Man. And how can an individual claim to be the Son of Man when Daniel is telling us that the Son of Man is actually a people? Is Jesus out of his mind? What is Jesus doing? How can Jesus claim to be this son of man who receives a kingdom, but when Daniel tells us the people receiving the kingdom are actually God's people? What do we do with this? And so even though Daniel identifies the interpretation to be the saints who are the son of man, I believe there's actually good reasons to see that there is also an individual messianic figure who receives this kingdom. So that what we're going to actually see is that there is a duality, there is a combination that it is both Jesus and his people who receive the kingdom of God. The Son of Man refers both to the people of God and to a messianic figure. How do we see that in Daniel chapter 7? Well, we see it in a couple ways, and uh, I'm just going to, um, well, there's several ways, but I'm just going to do two that seem pretty obvious and will make the point. The first one is this, is that the description 
of the Son of Man when he comes on the clouds into the presence of the Ancient of Days is a picture of God himself. What do we mean by that? We mean simply this, is that in the Bible, the only person who is ever depicted as traveling on clouds is actually God himself. In fact, the rabbis of Jesus' day actually called God the cloud rider. He is the one who rides clouds. So this means that the Son of Man figure seemingly is pictured as a divine figure as he approaches the Ancient of Days. See, when Daniel says that he saw a Son of Man riding on the clouds, it is a picture that this is a divine being. He comes to the Ancient of Days. In fact, some of the ancient Greek versions of the Old Testament, they had actually Greek versions of the book of Daniel, interpreted the verse this way. Upon the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man, and he came as the Ancient of Days. So that even ancient interpreters understood the son of man as a divine figure and not simply a description of the saints of the Most High. So, we could just summarize it this way. It's just really easy to say that the Old Testament writer here, Daniel, and the Old Testament rabbis and teachers, when we see this depiction of someone riding on clouds, is a messianic divine figure. Number two, and probably a more persuasive argument, is what I want to call the interplay between kings and kingdoms. This will help us navigate this interpretive difficulty. And again, if you've got questions, feel free to jump on and ask them. Um, don't be afraid to stop me here and be like, what the heck are you talking about? Um, but what we're trying to do is, again, come and see when Jesus says he's the Son of Man, what is he claiming? And what we're seeing is that he's claiming to be the fulfillments of Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 and 14. And the, the difficulty is, who is the Son of Man? Is he an individual messianic figure, or is he the people of God? And the second reason why we think that it's both is this. The four beasts in the vision are referred to as both kings and kingdoms. In verse 17, the beasts are called kings. Look at verse 17. It says, The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. So what does that even mean? It means that Paul, sorry, Daniel is identifying these beasts as individuals. Whether they be, you know, we're not going to go into all this, but whether it be Darius or whether it be Nebuchadnezzar or whether it be Alexander the Great or whether it be Caesar, they are individuals. That The beasts are identified as individuals. But then notice in verse 23, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other beasts, all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth, trampling down and crushing it. So what we see is that the beasts can both be an individual, the king, and it can be a kingdom, the corporate people. Now, how can even Daniel understand the beasts to be both an individual and the people? And here's how. Old Testament theologians and Old Testament people understood this concept of what we call corporate solidarity or corporate representation, which means this, a king 
A priest or a father can represent respectively a kingdom, a nation, or a family. Even though the king, the priest, or the father is distinct from the people they represent, each one can and does represent a kingdom, a nation, or a family. So the Son of Man then, in verses 13 and 14, can both be a king and it can refer to the kingdom. They are so intertwined together. They are bound up together so that what is true of one of them will be true of both of them. What is true of the father will be true of the family. What is true of the king will be true of the kingdom. And you see this just in different ways throughout Old Testament history. And, you know, I use the the movie Troy quite often because I think it's a unique parallel. But when Achilles would go out and fight. If you remember these scenes in, in the movie Troy, you know, Brad Pitt would walk out and he'd be the one representative of all the nation. And then the opposing enemy would send out their greatest warrior to fight. And whoever won that singular battle would actually win the war. Now, this is what we see in the story of David and Goliath. When David and Goliath are out fighting each other, in one sense, it is a battle between two individuals. But you could also say that this is a battle between Israel and the Philistines. And so what we see is there, there is this great corporate representation that what is true of one of them is true of all of them. When David defeated Goliath, what was true of David's victory then was true of all the people of God. And so what is true of Jesus when he has received his kingdom, will be true of us. And we're going to have to see this corporate representation because it is throughout Scripture. We see it negatively in the Garden of Eden. When Adam sins, he becomes the corporate representative of us as humans. And because he is a sinner, he represents all of us. And so now we are sinners. This is another picture in Scripture of corporate representation or corporate solidarity. And so this corporate representation, or the one representing the whole, has significant overtones when we see it being fulfilled in the life and the death of Jesus. As we trace the interpretation, the same path for the saints to receive the kingdom is also the same path that the Son of Man, the Messianic figure, must take. And so the opposite is also true. The path the Son of Man must take is the path the saints must take to receive the kingdom. And what I'm trying to see is when we see what is true of Jesus is true of the people, and what is true of the people is true of Jesus, how do Jesus and the people receive their kingdom? They have to be true of each other. They have to be the same. And so what I want us to do is notice the sequence of events that culminate in this end time receiving of the kingdom of God. And this is from the book of Daniel chapter 7 as well. It says this, the fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on the earth. And this is in his interpretation in the second half. It'll be different from all the other kingdoms that will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. And so there's this final fourth kingdom that's going to be across the whole world and it's going to be the most powerful, oppressive army and kingdom that the world has seen. And this 
particular army, this particular kingdom is going to have ten horns. It's going to have ten kings who come from this kingdom. But then, after these ten kings, there's going to come an eleventh, a final horn, a little horn, who is going to come and he's going to dismiss three kings. And notice what he's going to do. He's going to speak against the Most High. He's going to speak against the Ancient of Days. And he's going to oppress the Most High's holy people. And he's going to try to change the set times and the laws. And the holy people will be delivered into his hand for a time, times, and half of time. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away, and it will be completely destroyed forever. So what I'm helping us see is simply this, is before the holy people receive the eternal kingdom, the little horn will severely oppress God's people. Israel will have to undergo severe trial by this end-time enemy before their possession of the kingdom. There must be suffering and affliction before there is glory and exaltation. When Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, he's not only identifying that he is going to have this glory and this exaltation of a universal kingdom where all the nations are going to worship him, but he's also identifying with the oppression and the suffering of his people. In other words, Jesus must suffer at the hands of God's enemy and then receive his kingdom. And these are primarily the references Jesus makes about himself in the Gospels. So, when Jesus comes on the scene, and he alone calls himself, his favorite title, the Son of Man, from Daniel chapter 7, what is he saying about himself? He's saying this, the Son of Man has come to actually be oppressed at the hands of this wicked kingdom who's in charge, who's going to actually be persecuted, as we're going to see, he's actually going to be put to death. And it has then that as he goes through this persecution, through this death, he then will receive this glory and exaltation. That's the pattern in Daniel chapter 7. Is that before the Son of Man, the saints of the Most High, receive this eternal kingdom, they're going to have to go through this intense persecution, this intense tribulation. And so Jesus, identifying as the people of God, identifying with the people of God, comes on the scene and is trying to tell everyone that he must actually suffer. And we're going to look at some passages in just a few minutes where he does this. But I don't know if you remember the story of Peter. When, when Peter is told by Jesus that he's the Son of Man, he's going to go and die, how does Peter take that message? If you remember, he doesn't take it very well. In fact, he rebukes Jesus. He says, you will never do that. And so... Jesus has to rebuke Peter and tells him, get behind me, Satan. And there's just this dialogue that when Jesus identifies as the Son of Man, there is this idea that you ha he has to go through this suffering, this tribulation. And so let's just look at some of these passages, how Jesus uses the Son of Man description in reference to his passion, into reference to his death. And I have these for you, but um, most of these are found throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we'll look at a few from the Gospel of John, too. But he says this, He then began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. 
Jesus understood the order of Daniel chapter 7, that before he, the Son of Man, could receive this eternal kingdom from the Ancient of Days, he must be rejected. Or this very famous verse in Mark chapter 10, that might give a little bit more meaning to it, because we know the second half of it, but maybe don't put all the pieces together about the first half, when Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we have this verse, maybe memorized, we use a lot, that Jesus, as the rightful ruler of the world, could have come and just made everyone serve him and worship him. But he didn't come that. He came to actually serve. And the way that he is serving is by going through death, giving his life for us. And so why does Jesus identify as the Son of Man in giving himself? Because he's going back to Daniel chapter 7 and saying, it is through this oppression and through this tribulation that I have to go through so that I can actually receive glory and exaltation and the kingdom then can be given to you. Matthew chapter 26 says this, Then he returned to disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? This is the night Jesus is about to be betrayed. And uh, if you remember, but he was like to his three inner circle there, Peter, James, and John, and said, would you guys pray? And so he went away and prayed by himself. He came back and he found Peter, James, and John doing what? Just sleeping. And so here he is in this passage and says, are you still sleeping? He says, look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus again identifies himself as the Son of Man, as a picture that he must go through this particular trial and tribulation. Or John also uses the Son of Man quite regularly in his passages, his writings. And he says this, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. And who is that? The Son of Man. Again, here's a picture, I think, of Jesus riding on the clouds, being this divine figure who is actually in heaven. He came from heaven, and he identifies himself as the one coming from heaven on the clouds as the Son of Man. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. John here is identifying this divine messianic-like figure who is the Son of Man, comes from heaven, and he's coming down to be lifted up on a pole to actually go and take all the tribulation that God's people should experience. And so here are just four. There are obviously multitudes, not multitudes, but many more passages described in uh, the Gospels about Jesus being the Son of Man and having to suffer. But... Then comes the glory and the exaltation. Then comes the passages where Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man who is going to be receiving this eternal kingdom and he's going to be handing this eternal kingdom over to his saints, his disciples. And so here are some passages, just four again, about Jesus identifying himself as the future glorious Son of Man. It says in Matthew 16, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Or again, in Matthew, Mark, sorry, Mark 14, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? 
And again, remember I said that no one calls Jesus the Son of Man, only Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man. How does Jesus respond? He says, I am, identifying himself with the I am of Exodus 3 when God shows up to Moses at the burning bush and tells Moses to tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. Jesus here is identifying himself as the I am. And then he says this, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. I hope you have Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 in your mind, and you can just see all the parallels here. The Son of Man at the right hand of the Mighty One, the Ancient of Days, and coming and riding on the clouds of heaven. Jesus here is clearly defining and telling people. In fact, he's telling in this particular passage, um, I believe it's Pilate, that he is the Mighty One, the Son of Man who is coming, and you're going to see me in my kingdom. Or the next passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on all thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus here is saying, Exactly what Daniel 7, 13 and 14 are saying is that I am the messianic figure who is going to experience the trial and go through the persecution and give my life so the Father can receive, the Father can give to me the kingdom. And then I am actually going to give you the kingdom. In fact, you are going to be ruling in that kingdom when it comes. Or the last one that we'll look at is in Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 and 31, that says this, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And so here's a picture of Daniel 7, 13, and 14 being fulfilled of the Son of Man, the Messianic figure, Jesus, coming in this glory and exaltation. When he returns, he is going to be given this everlasting kingdom. And then he's going to gather all of his people, and he's going to give this kingdom to his people. We, as the followers of Jesus, the elect, are receiving the kingdom that Jesus has won for us because he is this messianic figure. He is the Son of Man. So, there's a lot that we just mentioned. Let's just take a break and review. And uh, if you have any questions, this is one of your times to uh, jump in and please go ahead and let me know what your questions are, but what are we doing? We're asking the question, what does Jesus mean when he identifies himself as the Son of Man? And what we're seeing is that he's claiming to be the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And the passage in Daniel 7, 13 and 14 talks about a Son of Man who is going to receive a kingdom. But when Daniel interprets this vision... He interprets the Son of Man as a people, as God's people, as the saints, the, the, the holy ones. And so how can Daniel interpret the Son of Man to be a people? And what we're seeing is this corporate representation that Jesus acts on behalf of the people so that Jesus actually receives this kingdom through his obedience, 
Through his death, he conquers all the powers of sin, Satan, and death. In his resurrection, he launches a brand new world that one day when he returns, he will be exalted and be given an eternal everlasting kingdom in his authority as the Son of Man. He will sit forever as the new creation's ruler. And so this is what Jesus understands his mission to be. Again, his mission is not to get us to heaven. His mission is not to just forgive our sins. Obviously, we're going to spend some time in heaven before we come back to the new earth. And obviously, we need our sins to be forgiven if we're going to be on this new earth. But what the Son of Man title is, is that God came in the person of Jesus to reclaim the world that Adam lost in the Garden of Eden and to bring about the world that God always wanted to be brought about. And let's just take a little rabbit trail here. This world that God wants to bring about is the, the world that we see in Revelation 21 and 22 or that we just read the renew of all things happen when everything is made new. This world that is being brought about is being brought about by a God-man. We, in theology, you may not um, have this debate, because I doubt you've had this debate recently. The only debates you have these days are, should we go outside or not go outside, and how dangerous is this virus? But one of the debates that theologians have is how could God, Jesus, sorry, be 100% God, and 100% man. And so we try to do math and be like, is he 200% of a person? And we end up saying, no, he's fully God and fully man. And the reason he had to be fully God was, you know, he had to be perfect and he had to be man. Why? Because he had to experience everything that we experience. And I believe all that's true. I'm not trying to deny any of that. But when you put it in light of the story that God is doing in the world... Why is it that Jesus had to be both the Son of God and the Son of Man? That he had to be the God-man? And I think the reason why his humanity is important is simply this. Is who did God entrust his mission to? Who did he give it to to accomplish? He gave his mission to Adam and Eve. He gave it to humans. And we already read earlier that God doesn't lie. He doesn't change his mind. And when God said he's going to bring his world about through humanity, he is going to be faithful to that commitment. And so he tried with Adam, and Adam failed. And he tried with Noah, and Noah failed. And he tried with Abraham, and Abraham failed. And he tried with all of these people. And all of these men, these faithful men, these men who love God, were unable to actually step on the head of the serpent and destroy the power of sin and deal with the pain of death. And yet, God was saying, I am going to actually bring about a man. But he had to be God. Why? Because we've seen all these other men, because of the power of sin, Satan, and death, were unable to actually accomplish it. And so Jesus being 100% God and 100% man is important. Not just because we need to have a right understanding of Jesus, but in the line of the story, we need a man to complete God's mission, to step on the head of the serpent, to destroy the power of sin, and defeat death for us. And yet, no man can do that. No man is powerful enough to meet that match. And so God wrote himself into the story. And so this is why it's important that Jesus be both God and man. So I think we got a couple questions here. Um, 
that I'm just going to take a break and we'll come back and uh, finish up here with another interesting idea from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Uh, but one writes, it's fascinating, even the disciples seem to expect Jesus to be a different kind of son of man, not someone who would suffer. Do you think that was part of the opposition? That was part of the opposition from the religious authorities. Um, and if I understand the question correctly, did the religious authorities, did they oppose Jesus because he was simply um, claiming that he was only going to die? Is that maybe the question? I'm trying to... He wasn't what they were expecting. He was son of man. Yeah, what they were expecting. Yeah. Jesus definitely was not what they expected. And Jesus' kingdom that he brought was definitely different, as we'll talk about in just a minute. And, yeah, I think the religious authorities opposed Jesus for many reasons. And I think the prominent one was they, I'm going to use the word jealous. They didn't like all the notoriety that Jesus had. And to be from Nazareth, to be the son of Joseph, to be a nobody, and to come on the scene. It's like if you got a large family and the little runt of your family becomes everything and the famous one, you kind of resent the little guy. And so this is what I think the primary reason for religious leaders were. Obviously, they were inspired by Satan um, to do that as well. So there's like a divine side of it, but I think the human side of it is they just didn't like this man and what he was doing, and the the fame that he was taking away from themselves. Another question says, it seems even like the disciples... Oh, okay. Do you think that was part of the reason? Oh, gotcha. Just continuing that one. Good. Well, hopefully that is helpful. Um, but yeah, and that's actually a good segue, because one of the things I want to look at is the kingdom that Jesus brought is not the kingdom that Daniel even thought was coming. The kingdom that Jesus brought is not was not understood by Daniel. In fact, it wasn't understood by many people in the first century, by many Jewish leaders in addition. And why? Because Jesus calls his kingdom in Matthew chapter 13 a mystery. Now, he says these are the mysteries of the kingdom, and he goes on and begins to talk about all these different parables about the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like. And in essence, all of these parables are saying that the kingdom of God is already here. See, the Jewish people expected this one singular, massive, cataclysmic event where God would come back, smash and judge all of the evil out, stamp out the evil, get rid of all the evil people, and then he would usher in salvation and righteousness for all of his people. And so there would just be like this one massive war, if you will. This one massive event where this would all take place. And so there come one moment where all the evil was done away with. The age that was filled with Satan and evil would be done away with. And the age to come would be ushered in through this messianic figure. And that's what's pictured in Daniel chapter 7. But what Jesus actually says is that the mystery of the kingdom is this. It's something that was not fully revealed in the Old Testament that now that I'm here, I'm making like a light bulb. It's like, boom, this is what's happening. And so Jesus, in a sense, is not changing the plan. He's changing how the plan happens. The plan is still to bring this kingdom. He's still the son of man. But rather than in a single stage, this kingdom is going to now come in 
two stages. The prophets were unaware, the Old Testament prophets were unaware of these two stages of the kingdom of God. The first stage, when Jesus rises from the dead and he brings God's rule and God's reign to the earth, is like a mustard seed. It's quiet, it's silent, it's small, but it begins to flower and to blossom and it actually impacts everything around it. And the kingdom of God is like a sower. And I don't, oh man, don't get me off on the sower because I'll just spend the rest of my night talking about how we misinterpret the parable of the sower. But the parable of the sower is that when God's kingdom is here in this mystery form, there's going to be outright evil people. There's going to be people who kind of embrace the kingdom of God. And there's going to be people who are true members of the kingdom of God. And they're all going to be gathered together and living together. And that was unheard of. They thought in that singular event, all the will be done away with and only righteous people would be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells a parable about how this two stages of the kingdom of God is being unfolded. It's like a flower. It's blossoming. And so Jesus, when he brings the kingdom as the son of man, this is what the religious leaders did not understand. This is what Peter could not understand. Why would you die? Don't die. Just go and bring God's kingdom. Knock over Caesar. Knock over Herod. And let's just bring in this revolutionary kingdom. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. He had this already not yet form of the kingdom. And maybe another time we'll dig into more of that. But what I want to dig into is something else that will be fun. Um, might engender lots of questions. I hope it does in the coming days. And you can feel free to email me and I'll maybe... Even if you put these on when you see this later, if you're not watching it live, but watch it um, later and you have questions, go ahead and post it on here and I can answer them and make sure we come and deal with them next week too. But here's what's also interesting is Jesus in his death and resurrection not only brought about the kingdom of God, he brought about what we call the last days. The last days are upon us. And not because we live in 2020 and there's a national pandemic and Revelation tells us that there will be pestilence and famine and disease throughout the whole world and so here we are in the last days. No, according to the New Testament writers, when did the last days actually begin? Did Paul understand himself to be in the last days? You better believe he did. The last days do not happen sometime in the future. The last days are actually right now. And part of the last days is what we're going to call a day of tribulation. Moses talks about a future last days. And this is a whole other fun topic is look in the Old Testament all the times when they say in the latter days, in the last days, and to see all the things going to happen in the last days. Well, Moses says this, when you are in trouble and all these tribulations come upon you in the last days. See what uh, sorry, Moses is telling us is that in the last days, you're gonna the people of God are gonna experience tribulation. They're gonna experience trouble. All of these things are gonna come upon you, and when these last days come, then you will return to God, obey His voice. If the Lord God is merciful, He won't leave you, and He won't forget His covenants. What I'm helping us see is that the last days are associated with tribulation for God's people. 
Paul understood the last days to be an initiation of the time of tribulation for God's people as he builds his theology off of Daniel. See, Daniel chapter 7 not only identifies Jesus as the Son of Man and receiving a kingdom and this glorious power is all his and it's going to be his, but it's also unpacking for us a time of tribulation that God's people are actually going to have to go through to enter into the kingdom of God. I don't know if this is ringing a bell with you, but in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are on their missionary journey, and it says, they say, it is through many trials and tribulations that we must enter what? The kingdom of God. There is this Old Testament expectation that in the last days, there's going to be tribulation for God's people. And Daniel chapter 7 is highlighting this, is that there's going to be these evil rulers, these evil forces who are going to bring persecution upon God's people. And you and I are kind of like, we're beginning to finally maybe experience a, a taste, a very, very small foretaste of some type of religious persecution. And it's weird for us to, to see the church lose its moral power in, in our culture. But if we just look at from 1900 to 2000, there were more martyrs for the Christian faith between 1900 and 2000 than there were for the first 1900 years. Which means that the growing tribulation is coming upon the world. That this tribulation, even though we don't see it, we don't experience it, we might be getting to, that does not mean the rest of the world is not experiencing it. There were more martyrs for Jesus in the 20th century than there were in the first 19 centuries. And this understanding of the last days being the beginning of tribulation for God's people is building off of Daniel 7 and Daniel chapter 11. And I have on your document for you some passages I want to look at, and I got about eight minutes to uh, do this. And we might just have to pick up some of this next week because, um, yeah, I want to make sure that you're getting what I'm talking about and not just flying through this. But Daniel chapter 11, Daniel has another vision. And it's a description of the final attack of God's enemy upon God's people. So in this final attack of on God's people by God's enemies, there will not only be persecution, but there's going to be flattery. There's going to be deception. There's going to be false doctrine spread so that many people will be deceived and apostatized from the Christian faith. And Daniel chapter 11 is, again, if you, I'm not going to do all this with you, but Daniel, the second half here, seven through the end of the book, are these continuing, building off of each other visions of the end of the world, if you will, and how God's kingdom is finally established. And in Daniel chapter 11, verses 30 and 45, I'm just going to, I have this in a chart for you because I want you to see the parallels. It's it's very fascinating. In Daniel chapter 11, Daniel says this, The enemy's armed forces will rise up to destroy and desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. And they'll set up the abomination that causes desolation. And with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. They won't give in to the flattery, the deception. And then... 
Look at how Paul uses this passage and builds on it for the letter to the church at Thessalonica. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. Don't give in to the flattery. For that day, that day of Jesus coming back and bringing his kingdom will not occur until two things happen. The rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And this man of lawlessness, Paul continues on to say, will oppose himself and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Well, Daniel chapter 11 continues to say that this individual, this lawless one, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. So what I'm helping us see is Daniel chapter 7, the son of man, when he brings in the kingdom of God, he ushers in the last days and these last days are days of tribulation for God's people. And you see Paul highlighting that we are in tribulation. The Son of Man has brought the kingdom of God, but in bringing the kingdom of God, the time of tribulation has begun for God's people, for the church. But don't be deceived. Jesus has not come back. The kingdom is not fully here. You haven't missed anything. That's what the church at Thessalonica was thinking. Because two things have to happen. Number one, the apostasy and number two, the man of lawlessness needs to be revealed. And I'm not going to, I'll just highlight those two things for you. I do believe this, is that we are in the last days, a time of tribulation. And the tribulation is already here. But this, this tribulation is going to escalate. And there is going to be this climactic part of the tribulation. Where in this climactic part, there are going to be the forces and the spirits that are at work in the world that are going to cause God's people, people who claim to be followers of Jesus, to believe the lie, to believe the lie that God, sorry, that Adam believed in the garden, to disobey God, to run away from God, to put their trust in themselves and to put their trust in a serpent's. And so here's the point is that there's going to be this great apostasy. But then there's also going to be a man of lawlessness. And this can be a whole other chapter for us and might be lots of questions on this too, but it says the man of lawlessness be revealed. I do believe that there's going to be a physical human embodiment. There will be a future man, a man of lawlessness, who will lead the world against God and God's Son of Man, His anointed. And so the people of God are going to have to identify with Jesus just as he went through tribulation and trial. We are going to actually going to have to go through tribulation and trial to enter and to receive God's kingdom. Daniel chapter 11, the second box for you on page 5 if you're following along your document. Daniel chapter 11 verse 31, this evil man of lawlessness as Paul identifies himself will take over the temple fortress. He will pollute the sanctuary. He'll put a stop to the daily sacrifices and pick up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. He will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. So, Paul picks up on this idea, and he says the secret 
The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The secret power is already here. The power of the tribulation is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. There is this idea that we're going to come to see that the tribulation is already here. The spirit of lawlessness is already at work. And one day it'll take a human embodiment and be this climactic end. But it's here right now. And the reason it's not full-blown right now is because there's a restrainer. And who is that restrainer? Some people think it's Michael the Archangel. Some people think it's the Holy Spirit. Again, another day. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Isn't that a glorious phrase? Jesus will overthrow this man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. He's just like going to go... And he's done. And the splendor of his coming is going to put him down. But the coming of the lawless one, when before he's actually taken out, he's going to come in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that the wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So Paul is saying this. We are in tribulation. This man who will finally be revealed at the end of time, his work is already being at work in our day, in our time. There are flatterers who are coming into the church and deceiving the church with false doctrine. There are people who are being deceived. There are people who are actually going through persecution. And this is why there is this repeated refrain in the New Testament of persevering and fighting for faith and not giving in because those who actually believe the lie are giving in to the spirit of the Antichrist. See, John tells us in his writing in 1 John chapter 2, Dear children, this is the last hour. The last days are here. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, this human embodiment, the man of lawlessness that Paul identifies in 2 Thessalonians 2. This man is coming. But even now, many Antichrists have come. What is he saying? The spirit of the Antichrist is here. In fact, many people who, in the same way, are doing the same thing the Antichrist is going to do, are already here. They're doing their destructive, deceitful work. Trying to deceive God's people. See, when Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, he comes and says, I'm in bringing about the last days of God's kingdom, but know this, that when I come as the Son of Man, the time of tribulation upon and against God's people is also here. So continue to see that I am the Son of Man. I am the one who is going to bring in God's kingdom. And it may not look like God's kingdom is here, but it's here. It's secret. It's invisible. It's something that you can receive and believe and you put your faith in the Son of Man to overcome this man of lawlessness. So church, keep fighting for faith. Keep believing that Jesus is this Son of Man. Knowing that just as he had to go through many trials and tribulations and even to the point of death to receive his kingdom, he is calling us to follow in his example that there's going to be many trials, many temptations that come upon us. We're going to 
believe, or maybe not believe, we're going to hear of all kinds of false doctrines and people who flatter us. But don't be deceived. Continue to put your trust in the Son of Man. I'll close with this. There have been false teachers throughout the history of the church. We would be silly to think that in our day, in our country, we're the first Christian culture to never have false teachers. No, there are false teachers who are infiltrating our churches. And we need to be aware. And we need to keep coming back and asking the question, is Jesus the Son of Man? Is he the one who went through all the trial and the tribulation to the point of death to receive God's kingdom? And he is calling us to follow his example, to go through all these trials and tribulations so that we might enter the kingdom of God when he returns. I want to encourage you. Hopefully this has been encouragement to keep fighting for faith, to keep seeing Jesus as the Son of Man. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.